Hello, and welcome to this week's The Proteomics Show. This is a special limited series of The Proteomics Show sponsored by US Hupo called The Road to Chicago. Hi, I'm Ben Oscar, and I'm here with the organizer of the Chicago Pizza Crawl and, and Dr. Ben Neely. <laughs> and this week, uh, featured Dr. Nick Riley, who's uh, the newest member of the faculty at, at UW Department of Chemistry and was uh, the other winner of the U.S. Hupo to Hupo Travel Award last year. Yeah, it was super fun. We obviously talked a lot about glycans. And as Osborne just said, we had some choice information about Gino's East versus Giordano's. And I think we have to go to both, but please enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Mass Spec Support Group podcast. Nick, thank you for coming today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we're just going to hop right into it. Um, you know, this is kind of like a big picture. And also, I know you're transitioning, but like, in a nutshell, what do you, what do you do? What are, what are you up to scientifically? Uh, big question. Uh, a lot of directions to go, but I'd say the easiest answer is I'm currently a postdoc in Carolyn Bertozzi's lab at Stanford. So there mm-hmm. I've been doing a lot of glyco related things is what you could imagine. Um, and Kirwan is known for, you know, chemical biology, glycoproteomics, glycobiology. So it's been a fun place to explore how to use mass spec to go after a lot of questions that Kirwan's lab has been chasing for a long time. Before that, I was in Josh Kuhn's lab at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And so there I did a lot of mass spec instrumentation, proteomics method development, and really kind of, you know, learned all of the, the foundational information that I use now in Kirwan's lab. And so then... Really, it's been fun to explore the glyco side of Carolyn's work and really have fleshed out my own work into the, the glycoproteomics space. And so that's where I imagine living in the next you know, decade plus of my research life is really focusing on glycoproteins, glycans, maybe one day glycolipids, but a lot of cell surface biology is where I spend a lot of my time thinking. Cool. Yeah, we, we have this, I think, running theory on the podcast that everything great comes from Madison. Like there, there's a high density of just stuff, right? There is, for sure. I don't know if I, I can qualify so, as anything great coming from Madison, but I did enjoy my time there, so I can, you know, at least support that. It's, it's a fun town. Um, it is. So, so we're, uh, I, I know, but uh, listeners don't know where you go next. Yes, so next stop for me is Seattle, the other UW or UW. So I had to really uh, work on saying UW-Madison or UW, which is University of Washington in Seattle. So I'll be starting as an assistant professor there in the Department of Chemistry. So very excited to build a group and get off the ground and, you know, really explore some more glyco-related questions and a lot of mass spec-centric ideas with that, too. Yeah, you know, I was actually thrown for a while because uh, I think I'd seen an announcement or something and I thought you were going back to Wisconsin. And I think it's just that I get the U dubs mixed up. And there's like, there's even one in like St. Louis. And yeah. <laughs> I just getting mixed up in the acronyms. Well, so when I was in grad school, I didn't understand why University of Wisconsin was so intent on whatever we listed affiliations. It was UW-Madison. And there's a lot of UW schools like you know, UW-Stout and Eau Claire. And like, this is a big system within Wisconsin. So I thought it was that. But now that I'm in the bigger research world, I understand that there's a lot of UWs, whether it's University of Waterloo in Canada or WashU in St. Louis or University of Washington in Seattle. So yeah, I now kind of get this branding of each one has to pick what they're going to be known as. 
And, and then you have like the opposite of that is like UGA. Like, are there really other UGs? Because there's not. The U Dub though, that makes that makes complete sense. I feel like um, yeah. is worse of an acronym though than you know UGA is. Do you think that was it? They're like, we can't be Chug. <laughs> Do you think it was the shoes or just in general they just didn't like it? You know, maybe just the you know general philosophy behind the word UG, just like ah, not for me. That <laughs> mm. um, I, I, I want to ask this so. Uh, because we're kind of talking about, you know, what you do and things. And I just got it. We got to get it out of the way. You, you have come from a Nobel laureate's lab. Like, how, how does that feel? I mean, does it, does it feel different? Um, do, you, do you, like, carry this pressure? Do you just kind of carry this esteem? Like, what, what is that? What's that like? Tell me. It's pretty cool. So, I, I mean, I'll say that in the science world, it has actually had less of an impact than it has with my non-science friends. So in the science world, Carolyn has been respected and well-known for so long. And she's been, you know, two decades plus of innovating and like doing cool stuff. And so I'd say within the lab, it was never a surprise that she would win Nobel awards or that level of things. But um, I think it was a surprise that it was this year. And I feel very lucky that I was still in the lab when it happened. But it's been a pretty cool experience to watch the scientific community rally to Carolyn. She's a very likable and supportable person. She is a great mentor. She is very generous in all things in her scientific world. And so I think that it's been cool from the science perspective to watch how many scientists can say like, yes, this is a person to celebrate. Now from the non-science world, everyone now people are like, oh, you actually are doing something important exactly. with your time, Nick. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think that's been the most interesting part is people finally uh, an anchor to hold on to of like, this is something I've heard of before you told me about it. And so I think that's been a fun experience to tell my family and my friends. Like, you know, I think also too, before joining the postdoc, while in the postdoc, I've been like, oh, Carolyn is going to get a Nobel Prize one day. And everyone's like, yeah, okay, sure. Everyone says that about their, their, their research. Is that worthy? And I'm like, no, no, I wasn't lying. This, she is of that caliber and that quality. So it's been fun to see that come to fruition too. Oh, that's, that's a great perspective. Thanks for that. Yeah I, yeah, I don't think I'd thought about the fact that it like legitimizes what you do. Because like I do things that like I love, but I don't think it's necessarily like, oh yeah, you should totally like study bats. You know, that's, that's not, a, it's not a thing I get. But you're like, no, look, like I study the thing that won a Nobel Prize. Like it, it, it is providing that, right? Well, see, that's so interesting because I think from my perspective, I see your work, Neely, that like uh, you do cool work that people can relate to because it's like, oh, this really interesting organism or like we need to understand more about, you know, whatever bat ecosystems look like from a molecular level, like that kind of thing, I think can resonate with people. Whereas I'm like, I study cell surfaces and why they change in different diseases. And people are like, cell surfaces? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. mean like, I think it, it the, the removal of kind of this layer of information that people relate to is hard that's the hardest part about communicating science to me is there's like one step removed from why they should care about like how i would communicate what's interesting mm. but the nobel has definitely added that like you know bridge of oh you you probably would want to know about this that's too bad so so where, where are we in in terms of the glycoproteomics now you know and and yeah um is it something that people can dabble in? Because it, it seems like it's all, all encompassing and, and you hope that it's getting better, but we're, where are we now? 
That is an awesome question to ask because we're at a really like inciting, exciting inflection point, I think. And so we're getting to the area where more people that are in tech development are finally like understanding. And I'm one of these people that, you know, didn't know the glyco gospel until recently. Um, they like, oh, this is a really hard but important problem and we should use our technology to address it. And so we've seen software get immensely better in the past five years, really. We've seen a lot of people in the mass spec world, but also in other technology spheres really dive into like, oh, this is messy and it's complicated, but it's worth applying ourselves towards. And so that's really exciting to me. From the glycoproteomics angle in particular, I think that we're getting to the point where People can, people can collect quality mass spec data given the quality of instruments we have, and we can analyze it better and better. So if you get a glycoproteomics data set, it's no longer like, what in the world, how do I even search this? I think the challenge now is designing experiments well so that you answer a targeted question because there's so much complexity in glycobiology. So that's where it's still not quite, um, anyone can walk up and just do it without a background in it. Uh, because it's more about understanding the glycobiology question to then apply the technology we've built. So I still think there's a lot of technology that needs to be built, and I'm you know, selling that angle as the lab I'm trying to build. But I, I'm excited that we've gotten even closer to collecting quality data, but now it's about understanding how to use that tech to answer the questions we need to. Yeah, I, yeah, I like that answer, and I think that we've kind of got to away with not thinking hard about biology since our field is so low throughput and small, but yeah, and thought that the biology on the like inside would be harder. And in terms of the technology development, you know, I assume, you know, coming from Josh's lab, you, um, had mass specs apart all over the place is, 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 do you see that going forward? Or is the technology complete now? Do you, do you need to take these things apart with lasers in them? So, I mean, you're, Speaking to the calling of, you know, my mass spec days, I really enjoyed the instrumentation side of stuff. And I think that there's still very much instrumentation centric or focused projects that can benefit the glyco world. But I don't know that every glycoproteomics person needs to do that, if that makes sense. Like there are platforms and commercial options that can get you data that if you don't want to do the instrumentation, you don't have to. That being said, I still, my lab will do some instrumentation, but it's less on the instrument building side and more on the instrument modification side, if that makes sense. So you can imagine, like, let's talk about two projects that existed while I was in grad school in Josh's lab. There was my AIETD work that I was doing that was fun to explore with how to modify an existing platform with a laser, relatively straightforward. Then you have the cool, like, soft landing stuff they're doing that was started while I was still there. They entirely build a new interface to, coupled to a mass spectrometer that's like, it's it's hard to argue that's modifying. That's like building a new instrument that you use some existing pieces for. And so I see the glycoproteomics world still existing more in the modifying versus the building angle. Not be said, there are cool things that are still being built, especially think of you know some of the powerhouse institutions like Purdue's and other like, you know, these big mass spec building institutions have a lot to offer for the glyco world. Um, charge detection comes to mind when I think of like the Indiana space and like Purdue and IU and all that kind of stuff. But um, I think that my lab is going to be focused more on instrument modification. How can we use these tools, change the way they operate either from software or some minor hardware that we can, you know, take advantage of their tech capabilities, but also add this new thing that we wanted to 
Cool. Yeah. Okay. One, one more. Um, if, if somebody's, you know, our, our core facility is ready for, for glycoproteomics, right? Is that, uh, oh, somebody's got a good proteomics core. Do you, would you advise them to, to go glycoproteomics or do you pass that off to you or you know, send it to state or something? Uh, I think that again, it becomes more tractable for anyone, including uh, academic labs, core labs, whoever else, you know, industry labs, if you have a good experimental design. So I think like when I think of like outstanding core, I think of Brent right, at UC Davis and like what he can do. I think that if you brought him an experiment, we're like, here, we want to look at glycopeptides and like, well, how do we do this? He could collect quality data and you could get an answer. But I think if you just said, here's a, so an, a sample, I want to see the glycopeptides, you would get answers, but you wouldn't know what to do with it. And so I think also the angle of this too is what type of glycans or glycopeptides do you want to analyze? Because that is a layer that not every PTM has. You don't ask like, what kind of phosphopeptide do you want to see, right? What kind of acetylation are you care about? It's more like, I want to see phospho, it's there or it's not, it's this binary thing. So the heterogeneity of glycosylation means that some problems are more tractable for a generic proteomics population where others require a bit more expertise in like an academically focused you know, expert lab that way. So if you want to do in glycopeptides of just cyanylated things or one class of glycan, I think it becomes more approachable and accessible for anyone. If you want to look at use in domains, just something we think about in Carolyn's lab, which are these huge domains that are densely modified with O-glycopeptide or O-glycans, and you have to generate O-glycopeptides and localize glycans well, that becomes a bit harder for just the standard proteomics equipped core to then manage. Yeah. That, okay. Thank you. That was really helpful. I just wonder where things were in the it, it currently today. Well, okay. and I know like something that happened to me recently is, you know, I was reading these papers and they were, you know, like really focused on a single protein and really like evaluating the domains. And I just didn't kind of catch it as I was going through it. Cause you know, it was like a series of like super cool papers doing super cool biology. And then after I tried to replicate it, I realized that it wasn't necessarily like in vitro, you know, and, and I think maybe that's the question to me is, you know, when do you get from, oh, I expressed this protein with like a his tag and then like I purified it and that that's how I got this information to like, how can I know, let, let's take an APOE or, or I'm sure you have like some protein, but how do you natively get at those glycoforms, not overexpressing it and purifying it. But like, how, how far is that? Because like, that's what I want to do, right? Like I want to go into like a bat and take a protein and like, I want to know how it's differentially glycosylated. Is that like a five-year thing? <laughs> like, I don't think it's today, right? Right. So that's a really good point too. Uh, two layers to that. One, bats are probably more accessible than other organisms in the sense that they're mammalian. And so like mammalian glycosylation, we have like a decent handle on, but you have people that are doing really cool systems that don't have the well-defined glycome to know what even the glycan machinery looks like or what the glycans themselves would be. And so if you don't have that knowledge to build from, then your problem becomes even harder for any protein. Like if it's single protein, if it's the systems approach, whatever you want to do. And so that is one caveat to a lot of this. I've had folks come to me and be like, oh, we want to do like uh, glycoproteomics of this disease by pathogen. I'm like, that's great. I know nothing about the glycosylation of that. And so 
I can't offer you the help that maybe someone who focuses on bacterial glycosylation, that's all they think about, that would be the person to go to. And so like even that difference adds, you know, one more consideration when you're thinking about problems like this. On top of that, you're right that the like, native expression of things, it, the heterogeneity really challenges this because you spread signal out in so many ways. And so one way that you might purify, like we're used to purifying like science exclusion, or if you want to do some other like way to get at a native complex or native protein, but like glycoforms will change the physical properties. So you're going to have to be really intelligent and intentional about how you isolate things. So yeah. this is another thing that I will not denigrate the SARS-CoV-2 work at all because it's like really cool. But for a long time, we saw so many papers doing HEC-293 expressed spike protein. You're like, this is cool. We understand where it could be glycosylated, but this is not an infected cell. We, this is like not what it might look like. And so, again, very important to lay the groundwork with some overexpressed systems. But then eventually we have to move, like you're saying, to these native systems. And that, I think is where experimental design of like, what is the protein I want? How would I purify it with enough, whether it's purity or enough, uh, you know, um, resolution to get at the glycoforms I care about, those types of things make it the challenge. On the proteomic side, on the mass spec side, I think it still becomes a more tractable problem because of these advances we've had. But there, the biochemistry, the molecular biology is almost the limiting step. And then the mm -hmm. instrument, once you get to that stage, you can do the glycome, you can then collect the glycoproteome, you have the tools available for you. It's still not plug and play, oh, anyone can just walk up and do this, but at least you have, now we have platforms you can imagine collecting that data. But it's not, it's not like a two month project, it's a you know, multiple month to years project. Yeah, and, and I guess like as you were answering that, I, I think, yeah, I mean, that's what you kind of got at is, is that instrument wise, we're probably capable, it's all these other steps. Right. So, man, that's... I think um, the instruments, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you go. So I think the instruments are very capable, but also they're, with anything that's that heterogeneous or that complex, there's a chance for false hits, false discovery. It's not on the software side, but I think one thing that I hope people appreciate as they approach glycocentric problems is that uh, it takes a scrutiny that you need to look at your spectra, you need to make sure you understand what your instrument's telling you after you've acquired the data and acquired the data. So that's another level to making sure you have the, you know, the answer you think you have. Yeah. Um, and I've also seen this case, like how, how complete are, are our understandings or even our li the libraries of the glycans at this point, you know, and, and I've got this old library that uh, Mesh, uh, Carl Mesher's lab developed and, and, and I feel like it's, I should probably update that because it's like five years old now. <laughs> well, so that is a good question too, is that once you have constructed a good quality library, I don't know that the biology changes all that much, but that depends on your system and how quickly it might evolve. Right. And so, um, I think there are a couple challenges here to think about and the words that come to mind are the, uh, the Australian glyco community is pushing this glycomics assisted glycoproteomics. It would be great if every glycoproteomics experiment had a glycomics component like that should exist. Now we're not quite there yet, but that's the way the field is looking to move. And I think you talk about what five years from now looks like. I hope 
glycomics becomes just the first step of glycoproteomics. Like that's so how you, it should you be. Take your sample, pingase, release the glycans, make your library, go back on your sample. That's right. Yeah. Or do smart. beta elimination or whatever like you need Some, to do to get at the glycan class you want, right? But so you do the glycomics and glycomics is truly the way to get at structural information about glycans. It's very challenging. Now, I'm not going to say impossible, but challenging to get any structure information beyond maybe like the conserved core in mammalian glycans. Um, anything beyond that, just getting like linkage information is hard from a glycopeptide level. So all that to say, back to libraries, you're building a glycomics library and you can maybe layer in some structural information there. And then you use that compositional library to search your glycoproteomics data. If it's a cell line, let's imagine we're going in CHO or in HEC or something like that, the glycome will be different. And so if you don't use the right glycomics database or glycan database, then you're going to drastically change not only the things you see, but also maybe the wrong answers you get because glycan masses, you know, add up to weird things to, like that look the same. So if you have a wrong database, you might get a wrong hit. And so like, that's where it matters a lot is understanding what should and shouldn't be there. And that's where we see some things like if you're using, if you're searching human data, human glycoproteomics data, uh, you don't want to use a glycomics database that also includes mouse glycans because they have different terminal sugars. These sialic acids differ in these different mammalian systems. And so um, the mass of a single um, mouse based, like I'll just say Nugic, I don't want to get into the details because it, you know, it gets hairy quickly, but like some mouse specific glycans are like non-human mammalian glycans add up to similar masses of like uh, oxidation and uh, human glycan, if that makes sense. And so you have to be really careful there. One other side of this is I do think that cell lines and in vitro type of systems almost overestimate the heterogeneity. Cells can do crazy things if you passage them and passage them and like all that kind of thing. I do think we see a collapsing into more like biologically relevant glycoforms when you look at plasma sources or like tissue-based things. So you can imagine there's a glycan database of like a thousand glycans that have been seen in mouse, but you should probably only search for you know, 200 of those because a thousand, 800 of them came from a mouse cell line that didn't quite match the mouse biology. Hmm. So. Ben or Osborne wow. to go back to, like, I don't know that you need to update your database if it's created well, because then the, the biology of the system is not really rapidly altering, but if you excluded glycan classes or you didn't you know, look for that, that's where updating can really help a lot. Gotcha. Man, I, um, I think that we've, this is the most we've asked anyone science questions. <laughs> and, but it's been 14 of these things we've done. <laughs> Glyco goes, goes crazy pretty quickly. So it, I find it fun. Some people find it terrifying, you know, a little bit of both probably. Yeah, no, I, I've enjoyed sitting on the outside and, and watching it develop. And I just I keep cheering for it until I, yeah, and hopefully it, it matures before I have to do it again. <laughs> well, that's my job, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What, what a great sales pitch. So um, we should pivot though. Um, wait, you handle this part, man. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. So the, the next part is it's kind of like your origin story, but also for you, and you can go back to like, you know, you were six years old and you were eating frosted flakes and you thought about sugars, but you can start wherever. <laughs> but then also I think do talk about like, you know, this, this future, right? Like you're at a, you know, a pivotal moment. You're about to 
start start down. So, I mean, I think talk about that as well. So you didn't talk about how you got where you are, why you do what you do, but briefly also please mention your dream. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is a fun part of the conversation too, because as I've been talking to graduate students, trying to find people might be interested in joining the lab or just like getting into research in general, I always start with like, well, where are you from? What do you like to do? What like That's an important part of me to understand the scientists is understand them broadly. So I think it's cool to talk about these types of things. Um, as a brief background, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I say it weird. So Louisville, for those folks who haven't you know been to Louisville before, um, then I thought I wanted to go into CSI type of you know forensic chemistry because like every kid that grew up in the early 2000s, you know, there was like, oh, that's really cool. Uh, and so then I went to University of South Carolina, so you know, not that far off from you, Neely in Charleston. Loved South Carolina. Really enjoyed my time there. Um, did some undergraduate research in forensic analytical chemistry. And my advisor at the time, Dr. Stephen Morgan, he was like, you asked me a lot of questions about these instruments and not a lot about the forensic as aspect of this. It's like, maybe you should think about like an analytical chemistry like graduate program and really think about the instruments you want to do. And you ask a lot about these mass specs, maybe you should go learn about that. At the time we were using triple quads and I really didn't understand much about mass spec, but then kind of was, it, it was clear that it was very useful and useful beyond a way that I understood. And I knew I wanted to work on that. So I then applied to graduate programs that were very mass spec heavy, you know, all the big state schools with the analytical programs, like that type of thing. So that's how I ended up at the University of Wisconsin. And, um, you know, but what a mass spec powerhouse we were talking about with multiple PIs that I was interested in working for and everything. And so the instrumentation focus of Josh's lab and like the idea of doing gas phase chemistry and like all that kind of stuff really piqued my interest. And that's what got me into the ETD and electron transfer dissociation world and thinking more about all the different ways that you can use a mass spectrometer as like a, a gas phase beaker. And so that was kind of how I got into the world I am now. So all of that to say too is a brief highlight of the graduate work. I worked a lot on how to improve these electron-based fragmentation mechanisms using IR photons to you know, disrupt gas phase structure. It's really dull really quickly if that's not something you care about. I think it's the greatest thing in the world. But it turns out that those fragmentation mechanisms and methods were really useful for things like glycopeptides. So one of my last projects in Josh's lab, we looked at glycopeptides and I realized, like, oh, there's an entire world here that I just do not understand, but I want to know more. It seems like this is a space that could benefit from some more technology development. And, you know, it became clear too, though, at that point, like not knowing anything about the biology, I was like, I don't even know where to start. So that's where Carolyn's lab really had this perfect overlap of glycobiology knowledge, but still technology whether it's chemical biology technology or like mass spec technology, but that development of tech to you know, address these very specific questions in glycobiology. So that's the trajectory of how I got to like where we are at this moment. Going forward, I think there's a lot of ways that we can acquire mass spec data more efficiently and more intelligently. And so that's the mass spec side of the development I want to work on. But I also, this idea of systems glycobiology and understanding that glycoproteins exist uh, in concert with each other and they change and they're dynamic. And that's a way that I, I want to be able to approach glycobiology. The last thing I'll say too is a, a plea for doing intact glycopeptide work uh, and not removing glycans. Of course, remove the glycans if you want to study the glycans. But if you want to study the glycoprotein, please keep the glycan intact. 
because you can imagine this idea of the glyco code, right? It's the, the concept that a glycan plus protein creates a unique molecular surface. And that is the language, the unit of information biology is using at the cell surface. And so if you remove a glycan, even if you know that that protein was glycosylated, you've damaged, quote unquote, the unit of information you wanted to study. And so that's where I think the focus of my lab will be how to improve ways to isolate intact glycoproteins, intact glycopeptides from a more chemical biology and like how do we manipulate the biological systems we're interested in to then go to the mass spectrometer with our improved methods and say, we can now analyze this in a way more holistic way to get at the, the biological question we care about. I'm, I'm always surprised when I see that the people still are cleaving off glycans, right? <laughs> And then, and then the next concern is, uh, oh wait, we're actually really bad at um, determining our C13 isotopes. Uh, <laughs> <so> I, <laughs> yes. I was like, was there, did there really used to be a glycan there? Or we just did you pick the wrong precursor? Right? That's right. Well, that uh, and so then people will do the heavy labeling with water, right? Which does work, but it's just uh, there's a lot of analytical steps that you have to like, or analytical caveats to think about through all of those processes. You're like, why not just an analyze the intact glycopeptide? You can get all the information you want. Yeah. So so in this kind of trajectory, you know, you're like Louisville to Columbia to Madison to out west. I mean, did was there sometimes people have like these breaks and like, you know, you worked on a cow farm and then you got really into like <laughs> milk sugars. Like was there did you have like any of these like mo like I don't know, I had moments where I just like dropped out of school. Did you have any of these these breaks or you were just really like kind of on focus on track? Oh yeah, it sounds way more linear than it actually is always, right? Like retrospectively, like look at this path I took, but yeah, in the moment, flailing around trying to figure out what to do with your life. Um, so I would say early on in my undergrad career, I was very much like, I wanna go into higher education student affairs. So I was a tour guide, a campus tour guide. I was an RA. I worked orientation. I did University 101, where it's where you like teach the freshman like orientation classes. I loved all of that stuff, and I think that actually helps me be better as a scientist because I'm very used to like communicating. I don't know that I'm great at communicating, but I really enjoy connecting with people. That's part of what you know gets me going. So I think that helps me communicate in a certain way in the science world. But I thought for a long time I was going to go learn how to be on campus and like maybe. Eventually, one day a provost or something like that—that'd be cool. That, I mean, but then I realized can. that I really get most excited about science, and so it was this weird timing. I didn't realize that till a little bit later in my undergraduate career. I had already—I studied abroad, got very lucky that I had you know, funding to do that. So that was a cool experience that opened my eyes a bit. I went to Germany for a semester. Uh, so then I this—I took a, this is the end of my junior year. I get back from Germany. I realized I don't have enough time to really dive into the science world in the last year. So I took a fifth year as an undergrad, did a bit more science, but I applied for things like um, Goldwater and like all these other funding things. I just didn't have the science background at that point or the real vision to be like, I want to be a professor and do that to get any of those types of awards. So it helps me almost to have to like reset after being rejected. Not rejected is too strong of a word. I applied, I didn't get stuff and it was like, oh, I just need to kind of carve out my vision and be a bit more intentional about what I want to do in a little bit better way. And so that helps me during my fifth year. That's when I applied to grad schools and kind of had to hone what that next step was going to look like for me. 
So that was, I think, formative in a lot of ways. And then my grad career actually took almost six years. I took a long time there because I was figuring out like what I want to do. And I think one, a blessing and a curse of the mass spec training is that you can go into academia or you can go like industry loves proteomics people, right? And so there's so many opportunities to go in a lot of directions. And so you start wondering, like, do I want to do this like in the academic world for the rest of my life or do I want to go do something else? And so there's a lot of just trying to figure out what I thought was going to be the most fulfilling path and it ended up being, you know, as crazy as it sounds, people take a look at like what the academic path takes sometimes. They're like, why would you do that? And they're like, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's where I find my interest in my fulfillment. And I really like training and working with people and seeing that kind of thing. So that's kind of how I ended up here. But I would say it was very much not like six years old eating my Frosted Flakes. Like, I want to be a professor. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> the last thing on my mind there, I wanted to play sports for a long time, but I, you know, wasn't good enough for that. So, uh, you know, there's been a lot of career changes that happened along the way. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can, you know, the provost thing is obviously still on the horizon, you know? That's true. That's true. I don't know. I realized how much I enjoyed doing that as a student, but I don't know that I would love that. Man, I, I used to say, right. But that level of, uh, thought at the administration level is just different than when you're like, Hey, new high school students, I'd love to talk to you about how awesome university of South Carolina is. It's just like a different, different perspective. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, I, I imagine there's some temptation, right? Like, uh, I, I just assume that as, as you guys are defending in Wisconsin, especially out of Josh's lab, that there's someone from Thermo standing there with a bag of money <laughs> and like, Hey kids. Hey, go. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, you're coming to San Jose. <laughs> I, I would say that the opportunities coming out of Josh's lab or really any of the proteomics lab, like my friends and other proteomics labs, there was never a shortage right. of choices to make uh, what you wanted to prioritize, whether that be a high paying job or a job that got you closer to whatever position you wanted. Um, it is slightly frustrating the difference in you know income that can exist amongst the different pathways that you might choose but for me i i it's certainly a function of like growing up relatively comfortable i wouldn't say i grew up great but I, you know a middle class upper middle class had this idea of like i don't have to pursue the job that pays me the most i have a range of opportunities i can pursue that i want to find fulfillment and as long as i can have enough to find that, then I don't need to go after the highest paycheck. Not everyone has that luxury, right? And so I definitely recognize that it's a luxury I, I am afforded. And so I feel very lucky that I can pick kind of the academic route where I don't, I didn't have to immediately worry about helping family with money, you know, because the postdoc salary certain isn't, certainly isn't doing that, especially in the Bay Area. Not like I'm sending checks home for anything. So I think that it, there's a lot of circumstances outside of science that play a role into what you can choose next. But uh, I feel very, very lucky that I was able to kind of pick the one that I found the most fulfilling and interesting. That's all cool. Yeah. Okay. So the, the next pivot and, um, and I just could make the, you know, the assumption that you're in the lab a lot right now, and you probably will be for the next couple of years kind <laughs> of getting set up, but um, that those rare times when you're not in the, in the lab, what are you doing? I, I assume you, yeah, are you at the supermarket reaching things on the top shelf for people or you know, what, what are you <laughs> we doing? We haven't even you? mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, really, you know, Nick is very tall. 
<laughs> yeah, it's always it's been fun in the virtual you know years we've had here for people to meet virtually and then be like, oh my god, you're an ogre. Yeah, yeah I'm six six, so I've always been on the tall side. But it's funny, so that's well, I immediately always now follow this fact with my wife is six two and she is the shortest in her family, and so I am like very average when it comes to her side of the family. She's six two. Her mom is 6'3", her dad is 6'8", and her brother is 6'10". So My I just God. like right in the middle of <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That so we... I don't feel like it's like crazy tall as I might if I weren't hanging around with them all the time. <laughs> and, 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 the, and the callback is like our second guest, right? Like Amanda uh, Humman, like she's seven feet tall, according to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, no, it's funny. Yeah, we have no idea. Like you're just a little head on a screen. Um, that's right and then you see a picture of you next to like other people who like i know as a point of reference like bergen and ben are not short i'm like who the heck is next to them (laughs) (laughs) wait wait we we digress from hobbies and say i'll say i often wonder if like you know i end up visiting places for talks or whatever and like it's almost a harry potter situation of like there's an ogre in the bathroom like oh my god someone called it security (laughs) no but uh because of the height the sports were always a hobby like i think i whether or not i wanted to they were like you're gonna play sports and i'm lucky that i just enjoyed it so i grew up playing a lot of sports i still enjoy playing sports i actually uh shannon played basketball my wife so we have played some basketball she is way better than me so uh you know i let her run the court more often than i do um but i played tennis in high school uh, i played rugby in college so i really enjoyed that but that is a young man's game i tried to play a bit in grad school and just couldn't keep up um so no rugby for me these days but definitely try and shoot hoops or get out to tennis or pickleball has been fun you know that type of stuff pickleball. otherwise yeah, I really enjoy being outside. So just like sports do that, but also hiking and being at the ocean, just like hanging out, just walking around. I would, it's not really hiking, just like walking around outside, I think is like a, a way I enjoy spending my time. Okay. I swear pickleball just, just appeared two weeks ago. No, and, no. And now you, and now I hear about it all no. the time. No, no, it was, it was like, I think it, in my world, I think it was like four years ago, they were building some new senior center and like there was almost a riot because the old people needed more pickleball. And then young people found out about it. And so like there's this park across my street and they, I'm not shitting you, excuse me. They had like the world pickleball champion tournament there and it was at seven o'clock and they had like bleachers and like a stereo and like this is not a city this is like james island backside of james island they had cars parked everywhere and like everybody and their dog was out there playing pickleball so no it's it's huge it is not it's been it, yeah. it just arrived year about it two weeks ago for the first time no so, so i'll, I'll be there i see the video dirk Nowitzki playing pickleball and it's like okay it is a real thing <laughs> and nick plays it it's the it's yeah, it's well, obviously the future I'll be the pickleball hipster and be like, we were playing it before it got big. You know, and I mean, we, I learned <laughs> it when I got to California, but uh, basically some friends of friends type thing played. We have a park close to us that has a ton of pickleball courts. Old so, people. Yeah. It's mostly, I would say like the average age has come down steadily in the past four or five years when I've been here, but it started like when we first got there, we were like, yeah, we bring the average age down by 40 years, you know? And so, um, 
It is a lot of fun though, and it's great. So tennis is also, I think, I mean, you think people think of them somewhat equivalently. Tennis is harder to pick up as a beginner because there's just you know, a lot of techniques that you need. Pickleball is a bit more approachable. And so it's like a fun way to be like, hey, people that have never played pickleball, you're generally athletic. You can probably do this okay. And so it's just like a good way to go be outside with friends that way too. You, you can whack, it's like a wiffle ball. Like you can whack it pretty hard and it's not like a tennis ball where like if you're like angle slightly off, like it's it's gone <laughs> yeah. like two blocks away. Yes, so, yeah. Man, that's that's awesome. So here, we'll get into the, the next one. <laughs> so we're yeah. all going to play pickleball in Chicago. So you are coming to Perfect. Chicago. Have you ever been to Chicago? I have been to Chicago many a time. Gr- going to grad school in Madison made it easy to get to Chicago. So Probably I mean, more than 20 times, more than I can count for sure. Oh, then that means you have inside information. Drop some, drop some deets on us. Like what oh, do we do? Most of the time I've been there has been when it's warm. Cause I would go for like Lollapalooza and those types of things back in the day. Um, but I would say the, the most important thing is to pick your pizza of choice. Right. So like, that's the one thing that everyone asks like, Oh, what, what's the best Chicago pizza? I'm a Gino's East fan, but you know, some people like Giordano's, some people, you know, Pizza Uno is probably the one that most people have heard of because they are spread everywhere. I would argue that Pizza Uno isn't bad, but you don't want to have your first Chicago pizza at Pizza Uno. Okay. I, you know? I need you to tell me like, so th- US Pizza is very short and like, I've got That's like right. a night. There is a Giordano's, whatever you just said, like half a mile away from the Drake. I assume there's a Gino's East. Which one do I do next? Like, tell me, because last week she said Giordana, whatever that one is, but like, not us, yeah. I got one night. Yeah. What do I do? I think, uh, pressure, you, you couldn't go wrong with either. So I'd say that I like the location and the convenience of Giordano's makes it an easy choice. That probably what I'd go for too. Okay. Because but yeah, I, it's going to be like negative, like 10 or something. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that the <laughs> I don't want to go anywhere other than the hotel lobby. I mean, Giordano's is then he left arm flip flaps. That's half mile. I have shoes can... just for this, <laughs> just for Chicago, man. Um, okay, that's that's really important. Um, oh, maybe check with Brett to make sure he's bringing shoes. He, no, he's got sure. Birkenstocks. We'll just okay, wear like wolf socks or something with it. Okay, yeah, sure. No, he won't have on shoes. He is from oh, Detroit, great. though. Like he knows cold. I mean, he he probably has something warm stashed somewhere. Sure, but he's he's in the habit of not wearing shoes <laughs> or wearing Crocs everywhere. Well, it, I gotta say, it's amazing how quickly your like winter thick blood disappears. The first winter I moved out to California from Madison, I was like, man, everyone here is super weak. And then the second winter, you're like, whoa, it's fifty. It's a bit chilly, you know. Like, <laughs> so you gotta just, put on a coat. Yes. Great. Um, any any other random Chicago thing um, for because it is um, still the road to Chicago? I looked at going to a Bulls game because I feel like Chicago sports are normally a lot of fun, but I don't know that I'm going to have the opportunity to. I'm flying straight from Seattle. I graduate recruitment weekends to just, uh, Chicago, so it'll be like a busy stretch that I have to kind of keep it. The schedule's pretty tight. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, there, there are two home games um, in a row. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to squeeze one in because I've never been in that stadium. Yeah, I've, I've not oh. been to the United Center. The Soldier Field is pretty cool. Um, but I w- yeah, I would love to. The Chicago sports scene is definitely a lot of fun. Wrigley Field, but that's, you know, we're too early for that. But. You'll have 
Blackhawks, right? I mean, that's kind of the appropriate time. Like we're late in the hockey season, so that's that that's would be pretty point. ridiculous. I don't know if you, you the, the the man, the mullet, the 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 myth, the mullet, the man, Kane, whatever he was. I didn't yeah. see still have a mullet. Yeah, he does. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. No, that's okay. Awesome. Well, wow. Did we check all the boxes off? Then? We did. We talked about sugars for like a lot. So I really yeah. appreciate that. But I, I, you know, honestly, I think that reflects to like our feeling of the field, right? Like everyone that I talk to that's outside of glycoma or glycoproteomics or glycoma, it's like, we know we want to do it. And I think it's always something that we want to talk about, right? Like you have an expert and you like, you like hold them and like make them answer your questions. Like, totally. <laughs> tell me, tell me what I'm doing wrong. Um, I'm going to use that clip when I'm trying to recruit graduate students next. Like, look, everyone will want you. If you do, come join my lab. <laughs> uh, well, that's, oh, okay. Yeah, that works. Because what? that's one of those applications where I try to find somebody that does it. And then if you want to send me single cells, I will send you um, the first asshole that comes in and wants me to do that comics. Nice trade, you know, in agreement yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah, um, I was sending out the immunopeptidomics until recently, um, until she went to the dark side. So yeah, those are coming my way soon. But yeah, no, I, wow. I think yeah, we we nailed it all. We're good. Yeah. Wow. Well, this was a lot of fun, Nick. Well, thank you thank, guys. I thank appreciate you for it. making the time. Yeah. Well, thanks for inviting me. I looked at the other guests. I was like, why in the world am I on this list? So thank you for having me here. <laughs> what was it? Ben told Burgett. He's like because. Ben Neely needs someone younger to talk to. <laughs> that was, that was she's like, he has, he's awkward otherwise. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. yeah. No, thank, thank you. Okay. Thank you for coming, Nick. Um, so real fast, uh, some credits. So the views expressed are solely ours. I'm going to thank US Hupo again for sponsoring us. Johannes for the song, which Nick has heard. Uh, Kaylee Kirkwood for the artwork. Wherever you listen to this, make, make sure you subscribe and like, uh, leave a review. Even though this is probably the last on the road to Chicago, we will have more. It just will be called something else. So, you know, stay subscribed. There'll be more. Yeah. So, yeah, again, Nick, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's been fun.